are starting a new series today in a book that might be the best message you have ever heard on this book because it's one of those flyover books at the end of the Old Testament, which is like the David and Goliath stories and stuff like that, uh, getting to the stories about Jesus. There are 12 really short books that most of us just flip past, uh, unless your kid is named after that, which one of mine is. Uh, and and it's today we're looking at the book of Nahum. He's one of the minor prophets, a small book with a really big message for us. Uh, we're going to go all through all of chapter 1, and we're calling this look at Nahum uh, a divine reckoning. So if you're like me, you had to look up what reckoning means this week because it's not really a word that you use. I think if we think about it, there's, there's people who say, well, I reckon, and the context of that is not the reckoning of what we're looking at. So what we're looking at, reckoning, divine reckoning, what it means basically is a calculated comparison. Reckoning means a calculated comparison. And we have reckonings all over our day, all throughout everything we do. Uh, in your bathroom or somewhere in your house, or maybe not at all in your house, is a scale. And you step on that scale, and that scale gives you a reckoning, a calculated comparison. It shows a number at you, and, and that's calculated, and it's compared to something. It's compared to what you want it to be. It's, the, it's compared to what you used to be, or it's compared to what you tell people that you are now. Uh, and, and that is a reckoning. I love to run. And for some of you, you're like, that is so sad. I'm really sorry for you. Uh, but I've got an app that goes to wireless headphones. And as I'm running every half mile, it gives me a reckoning. It says you are not as fast as you are in your 20s, but you're faster than you will probably be in your 40s and 50s. So here's your number. Keep going. Uh, you're sweaty and you're gross. But there's also reckonings for students. Like some of you are about to start school, and that's worse than running. Uh, and and then 10 weeks in, you're going to get a report card, which is going to be a reckoning. It's going to calculate and tell you how well you did in your class, which is compared to what your parents think you should do, and also compared to what you're going to tell your parents that you did anyway, until the report card comes home and boom, all of our lives are dead. I lived that life. It's not that fun. Uh, but reckonings, this is part of us. It's a calculated comparison. One of my favorite gifts, uh, that's those, those five-second videos that play on loop that you see on, on social media and on text and stuff like that, is Kobe Bryant. I'm a Lakers fan. Uh, it's great for me that all you Golden State Warriors, your team is a dumpster fire now. Uh, the glory has moved down to Southern California. We'll skip the Clippers because that situation just makes me sad uh, as a Laker fan. But there's a great shot of Kobe Bryant uh, safely on the bench at the end of his career because he missed way too many shots. Uh, and somebody is heckling him from the stands. And Kobe, when he was good and when he was playing, he won five championships. And some, somebody who's won as many championships as you and me combined uh, is, is heckling him. And Kobe just looks at, the, looks at the guy, doesn't say anything with his fingers. He just counts to five. Five. I've got five rings. And then he just goes back to looking at the game. It's like that's his calculated comparison. Five, that's the calculation and comparison because you have zero, so shut your mouth. And for Kobe, like this is a positive reckoning. Now, if Michael Jordan showed up and he's got his six, then Kobe's five would now be a negative reckoning on him, impossible or positive to the greatest player of all time, bar none, even though if you're a LeBron fan, you think, well, yeah, just look at the numbers, and it's still MJ, which is not the point, but it's still totally true. And we've got reckonings all throughout everything, and what we're looking at today is a divine reckoning. So it's divine, that means that it's a calculated comparison where God is on the other side of the equation, which means we all lose. 
okay? Because none of us on our own are ever gonna do anything as great and as powerful as God. But what God does in his mercy and in what he does that is so incredible and gets Christians so excited is in his strength, in his power, in everything that he does good, he reaches out to us to bring us into relationship with him. So in the book of Nahum, we see a divine reckoning that means comfort for some and condemnation for others. It means comfort for some and condemnation for others. This is on purpose. So Nahum is a, is a man that God speaks through about 600 years before Jesus is born because there's a message that needs to come across. And Nahum's, Nahum's name means comfort. And it's a word of comfort because for his people that is hearing this, it's good news for them. They're at a place where religiously stuff had been really, really bad for a really long time. And then in Nahum's life, stuff started to get better again. It was bad. The people in charge were doing bad things. They had totally lost how to follow God, similar how it is to our day. And one day, people were rebuilding their church building and took apart like one box. And in the bottom was the Bible. Like that's how far they had gotten from God is now nobody could even find a Bible. And so they begin to read the Bible and begin to learn about what God is actually telling them to do. So from the king on down, everyone decides, okay, we're going to take a step forward in following Jesus. They're rebuilding their history of being far from God to now start following after God. And so it's a word of comfort that goes through them to a different group of people. And for them, it's a divine reckoning that doesn't bring comfort, it brings condemnation. This group is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. It's a city called Nineveh. It's great that Nineveh and Nahum, both are words we don't use, and they start with the same letter. So when I like throw the other one in the other one's place in the next half hour, just smile and nod uh, and be excited because Alex is going to finish the message, and that's going to be better than me mixing up names. Nineveh said it right. That's good. It was a horrible place. Like, this is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, and they were a country that had a huge military and a huge army. And what they would do is they would ransack cities to the point where cities would see, this is like in historical records and stuff, cities would see the Ninevites coming, and the whole city would kill themselves. Just like, we're not going to fall into the hands of the Ninevites. We are done now. There's going to be no battle because we're not going to be alive to see it. When they would fight the Ninevites, what would happen is the Ninevites would take the remainers, the, the people who survived, the survivors, they'd dig a hole that was big enough to cover them up to their shoulders, and then they'd fill in the dirt. So it's people in the city, POWs in the city with dirt up to their shoulders, and then they would pull their tongue out, put a stake through their tongue into the ground, and walk away for the sun or the animals to take care of them. And so through Nahum, this group of people gets a word of comfort that's comfort for their enemies. God is saying through Nahum, I'm going to destroy your enemies and this is going to be good news for you. So in Nahum, we see a divine reckoning that brings comfort for some and condemnation for others. It's a word of condemnation. It's a book about judgment. And for us in 2019, it's so easy to look at the word judgment and think like we don't worship a God like that. We worship a God who's kind of like grandpa right before he wakes up or right after he wakes up for a nap with a full wallet of cash. He's just all about treats and money and everything's great and they both have big white beards and that must be how God is because that's how grandpa is. And that way of thinking doesn't work in life when you've seen things, when you've experienced suffering, when you've experienced injustice. You want a God who's seen what's been done to you. You want a God who one day will avenge everything that's ever been done wrong, who one day will avenge sin. 
and, and injustice and, and abuse. You want that God out there. And so we read this today as a word of judgment, knowing that everything in our world, the stuff that happened yesterday in El Paso and in Dayton, that there is a God who will make everything right again. And that involves judgment. We can't have an unjudgmental God who somehow punishes evil. It has to be a judgmental God who works in the way that he decides is best for all of us to one day punish evil. And so we see this in a book called Nahum about justice and about judgment. And what it is, is it's a call for all of us, for the country way back then, and for all of us to trust God. And so he lays out a bunch of different reasons why we can trust God. And the first of those is in uh, verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2. And the first reason that Nahum uses for us to be able to trust God is because of God's, it's a word that doesn't make sense to us, but I'm going to explain the context, jealousy. We trust God because of God's jealousy. Verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous God, filled with vengeance and rage. He takes revenge on all who oppose him and continues to rage against his enemies. The Lord is slow to get angry, but his power is great, and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. Okay, we understand jealousy because we understand Instagram. Right? You see pictures of somebody's vacation. You see pictures of somebody's brand new truck that's way cooler than yours and the wheels are so much better than the ones that you want. But instead of those ones, you got the ones that you have. And so you see them and you're jealous. And that's not the type of jealousy that God's talking about here. It's not jealous of his people because really God doesn't care about our truck. Uh, but God cares about us and he's jealous for his people. God is jealous for his people. It's a burning desire in God, a good holy desire for relationship with his people and within that relationship for mutual faithfulness where it's God and his people walking together. It's like the absolute perfect marriage. That's the image that God wants is God is the father and us as the church, we get to be the bride, which if you think about it as a guy, it's like that's gross, but God still loves us and God gave us those masculine thoughts. But he says, I want you with me forever in mutual faithfulness. It goes back to God's relationship with people from the beginning of time, that it's, it's a covenant. In our world, we have contracts. I saw on my phone in between services uh, that somehow, even at the age of 90, Tom Brady is reworking his contract because he plans to play until he's 50. And if you're a biological person, you think, you know what? Cheetahs only, use to, only usually live until they're 12, so the fact that he's still playing at 50 is pretty amazing because he's a, yep, there you go, fill that up. But it's a relationship of covenant. It's this idea that in a contract, if one side falls off, then the contract is voided. But God's saying this contract, this covenant between us is never going to be voided. And so when God looks at his people that he's pledged to be with forever, he tells Abraham at the very beginning of, of, Bible, of the Bible, he tells a guy named Abraham, he says, I'm going to be your God forever, and you and your, generate, your descendants will be my people forever. That's that jealousy of God that says, I am with you forever. One of the final things that Jesus said before he died on the cross for our sins, creating a way for us to have a relationship with God, he says, I'm establishing a new covenant in my blood. It's a picture, it's the means by which today in 2019, we get to have a relationship with God. And this all draws back to God's jealousy for his people. He wants relationship to the point that he's going to leave heaven and go live among us with skin on in the person of Jesus. Jesus is God with skin on. He's the human God. And so one day somebody asks Jesus a question. What's the best, most important commandment that I need to follow? How do I live out this life of following a jealous God? And Jesus says it's simple. You love the Lord your God with all your heart. Okay, I think I can do that. All your soul. That's tough. 
all your mind, and all your strength. He's saying, I want everything. It's this picture of everything. And then he puts on top of that, okay, now you have to love your neighbor as yourself. That means that God is saying, I want all of it. He's jealous for us with a jealousy that never gets quenched, never gets satisfied, because he's saying, I want all of it, and you can trust me with all of it. We see that by the fact that we are still alive, right? Part of the, part of the need for Jesus to come is that we believe as Christians that every single one of us is a sinner separated from God. That's why we talk about forgiveness. That's why forgiveness is so crucial to us, because all of us are sinners separated from God. We're not good people. We're sinners headed to hell that Jesus died for. So if you're here and you're not a Christian, that's how we view ourselves, which is why God is so foundational and his work in Jesus is so important to us. We see that we, the only reason that we have a relationship with God is because of Jesus. So when he says that, that God is slow to anger, that's grace towards us because all of us give God tons of opportunities to change things, tons of opportunities to cleanse us, to make us new people. The Tour de France ended uh, a little while ago. If you're Latin American, the first Latin person to win the Tour de France happened this year. It's great. Uh, And I heard a story about the Tour de France that just cracks me up. Like, it's funny to me. Uh, There are two guys that will pop on the screen right now. They are part of the, the, the crew that puts on the race and their unique job, because most of the race is filled by, filmed by drones or helicopters or things that fly above the racers, is to drive the whole course, and anytime somebody like spray-painted inappropriate pictures or something like that on the road that the cameras are going to pick up or wrote profanity on the road, they take what's there and they paint over it, or they take what's there that's inappropriate and they like make it into a butterfly or something, or make it, make it into a frog. So it's like, wee oui, wee, oui, that picture is very bad. Let me make it into a bouquet of flowers. And they're like, yes, this is great. And so you're watching the Tour de France, and there's these white splotches all over everything, or there's a random frog painted on the middle of the road. That's because somebody had to come back and clean it. That's because somebody had to go before the riders and take what was dirty and make it clean, make it appropriate. It's a picture of what God does to us does for us in his jealousy. He's saying, I'm not going to let you just sit there and be dirty. I want you to come to me. And so that means that God has to go before us to bring us into himself in the person of Jesus because he is a God that's jealous, not of us, but for us. The second thing is, is God, Nahum saying, you can trust me because of my power. Continuing verse three, he said the billowing, he displays his power from the whirlwind and the storm. The billowing clouds are the dust beneath his feet. At his command, the oceans dry up and the rivers disappear. The lust pastures of Bashan and Carmel fade and the green forests of Lebanon wither. In his presence, the mountains quake and the hills melt away. The earth trembles and his people are destroyed. Who can stand before God's fierce anger and who can survive his burning fury? His rage blazes forth like fire and the mountains crumble to dust in his presence. The point of asking those questions is to say no one, no one can stand before God's power. So us as as believers, us as people who follow Jesus, and if you're not there yet, we encourage you to stick around because we talk about him every single week. It's comfort to know that we have a God that is more powerful than we are to fight our battles for us. This word is being, this book is being dictated to a people who are under oppression. And he's saying, if you think the people who are over you right now, who have got their boot on your neck, you think they're powerful, you need to get to know me because I'm the real power. Saying you can trust me because of my power. Third thing is we can trust God because of God's faithfulness. 
He's reminding Judah, the country that this is written to, Nahum and his people, he's reminding him of his faithfulness, that he's their savior when trouble comes. Verse seven, out of all of his power, out of everything that God can do, you know, no one can stand in his presence. What does he say? He said, the Lord is good. He's a strong refuge when trouble comes and he's close to those who trust in him. It's great. I love the way that that's written. He, he paints this picture of how big God is, but how do you get close to a God that you can't stand in their presence because God is that holy? He's saying, you trust in me. We live our lives in humility, trusting in God as our forgiver, trusting in God as the one who empowers us for a life after him. We trust in God as the savior of our sin, which is very, very real, that we could never paint over and make something beautiful, but he does for us. He's saying, you can trust me for my faithfulness, that that will never change. And so he gives this picture of somebody who's coming into God for refuge in the, in the face of trouble. And even in all of his power, he says, all right, I'll give you that refuge. I'll give you protection. I'll protect you in the midst of all the chaos of life. It's the power of God and it's the love of God that meet perfectly. For us reading this after Nahum and now after Jesus, we see those things come together perfectly in Jesus. That he's the power of God and the love of God and the holiness of God, which separates us from God because God can't be in the presence of sinners like like us. But instead, Jesus comes to take on our sin to bring us into a relationship with God because God is faithful to continue his relationship with us, that covenant for forever. And the next thing, the next reason that God gives Nineveh to trust him, or God gives Nahum to trust him, is his sovereignty. All right, so now that just went on the list with reckoning of what does that mean? What does sovereignty mean? So it means basically no one can stop God. God has a plan, it is always going to happen on time, and it is always going to be the best. So whatever situation in your life you're like, I don't know what to do, God is going to work it out. And his plan is always going to happen on time, and it will always be the best. I mean, for us in our immediate context, none of us expected to be here at Sunnyside High a year ago when we bought property, took an offering to pay for the down payment and start repairs uh, on a piece of property that's at Kings Canyon in Bergen that a lot of you have been to. We all expected we would be there. But there were a lot of repairs that we needed to make. We had to get the city involved to do it legally and to do it nicely so that it looks great at the end. And the end result is that we are still hoping to someday be uh, in a building. Every date that I've said up here of when we're going to move in has been a million percent wrong. So I will say we're hoping to move in Thanksgiving of 2020 and hopefully I'm off by a year. All right. The good way. If you're thinking 2021, just see yourself out. Like that's just mean. Or you could join Setup Crew, see you at 6 a.m. every Sunday. But you know when we move in, it's going to be the right time. Across the street from our church, they're building hundreds of homes. And what gets me happy every time I drive up to our beaten down church that nothing has happened yet really and to the building that really needs help is nothing's happening across the street either. It's like, hey, it serves you guys right too. Uh, They're going to move in when we move in. And we're going to get a chance to launch a fresh new church and a fresh new building to people who are moving into their homes that currently are just a pile of dirt. Uh, And it'll be great when their homes are built. It'll be great when our home is built. And it's all going to happen on time because no one can stop God. One One of my favorite things about getting to be your pastor is learning your stories and how you got from, like, birth and growing up to to here. And one of my favorite things for married couples is to find out how people met. Uh, So one of the people in the Germany video, his name is John. Uh, He's married to a lady named Brooke. And he met Brooke 
because years ago when John was in college, he knew a girl named Brooke uh, Sorrell, which is his wife's maiden name. Uh, he knew her, and he went on this thing called America Online. It's like Instagram before there was Instagram, so just bear with me on this one. Um, and he wanted to find Brooke Sorrell from Fresno. And so he typed in Brooke Sorrell from Fresno, and this person popped up that he figured like, hey, this is the person that I'm thinking about. And uh, it's got her name and not really her picture, but sure, whatever, I'll start chatting with her. There are two Brooke Sorrells in Fresno. There's the one that he's married to now, and then there's the one that he searched for. And he started talking with this girl, and it turned out that, yeah, this is the woman that now he loves. And God brought two kids in the world, Archer and Olivia, their kids, because he's like, all right, we got John over here. We got Brooke over here. John is looking for the wrong Brooke, but boom, that's a change I can make really easily. Let's bring them together. I'm sovereign. No one can stop me. Boom, we've got a married couple. That's how God works, is, is he says, no one can stop me. I've got a plan. I'm going to work the plan. It's always going to be on time, and it is always going to be the best. Because no one can stop God, even when you're searching for the wrong brook. And this comes out in the passage. Verse 8, this is uh, Nahum talking about God. He says, God will sweep away his enemies in an overwhelming flood, he will pursue his foes into the darkness of night. Why are you scheming against the Lord? He will destroy you with one blow. He won't need to strike twice. His enemies, tangled like thorn bushes and staggering like drunks, will be burned up like dry stubble in a field. Who is this wicked counselor of yours who plots evil against the Lord? That is what the Lord says. Though the, though the Assyrians have many allies, they will be destroyed and disappear. So the Assyrians have this massive army, right? They control the whole entire Middle East. And God is saying, don't worry, Judah, my people. Don't worry. He's saying this through Nahum. Trust in me because one day your enemies are going to be gone. And you know how this huge, massive army was taken out? It wasn't by tanks and by helicopters and missiles and bombs. It wasn't by chariots and horses and things that we can think this would be the plan. You know what did it? Rain. Rain. Same thing that makes life grow here in the valley. It flattened the Assyrian Empire because what happened was they had built walls around their capital city. One day it started to rain a lot. The water built up against the walls. There's an army outside on the other side of the water. And one day the waters got too much for the walls and the, wa the water punched through the walls. The people put down bridges and they invaded the city. So God's sovereign. He's got a plan. When there's an army that's big enough to take over the whole Middle East, how does God deal with the army? Rain. That's all. Because his plan, even though we don't get it sometimes, is always on time. It's always the best. And it always wins out. Saying, you can trust me in this because I'm sovereign. And the last area is God's freedom. You can trust me because I'm a freedom-giving God. I'm a God that looks at you and what you need in the areas where there's brokenness in your life. And I bring freedom. Verse 12, he says, Oh, my people, I've punished you before, but I will not punish you again. Now I will break the yoke of bondage from your neck and tear off the chains of Assyrian oppression. And this is what the Lord says, considering the Assyrians and Nineveh. You will have no more children to carry on your name. I will destroy all the idols in the temples of your God. I'm preparing a grave for you because you are despicable. I read this and I have to be reminded as, as sinners saved by the grace and the blood of Jesus that there's nobody good in this story. Right, Judah is the better of two evils. They still ran away from God. They still didn't trust God. They still had to have a book written to them from God saying, stop trusting yourself. Come back and trust me. And we see that from the heart of a God who wants relationship with us. That we worship a God who has our freedom as his will. 
And he's saying, you haven't trusted me, but now's your time to come back and trust me again. And Alex is gonna come up and he's gonna explain to us how God does that perfectly through the person of Jesus. That while we were far from him, while we were trusting everything else, God took on skin in the person of Jesus to bring us into a relationship with him. Yeah, thanks, Ken, for this opportunity. Uh, and that opportunity is to, to share the, the good news with you guys. Um, in the midst of God's wrath, in the midst of our failures, there is good news. And the good news is that through the cross, we have access to God's undeserved comfort and salvation, even though we totally still deserve the wrath of God. So this happens in a few ways. The first way is that we, we join God's covenant people. Uh, so in, in Nahum, it is, it is Judah that, that God is uh, guaranteed his love for, that he is uh, the savior and comforter of the chosen people. And, uh, and Jesus made a way for people as wicked and as foreign as the Ninevites to be joined with God's people. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, uh, starting in verse 12, In those days you were living apart from Christ, much like the Ninevites. Uh, you were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world uh, without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. For Christ himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. So God's taking these two people, the, the Judah and Ninevites, the Jews and the Gentiles, the, the sinners who, who knew God and the sinners who didn't know God, and he's making one new people group. And we know later in Ephesians that it says that's the church. It's the, the community of people who have been forgiven by God. Whom God has guaranteed his love for. Um, it is people who have chosen this, this new agreement uh, that God is offering for us. The, the second way that we have access to God's comfort and salvation, it comes like for Judah in defeating our enemies. Uh, God delivered, got freedom for, for Judah by defeating Nineveh. And Jesus, he uh, delivered us, he got freedom for us by defeating sin, death, and the devil. It is no longer uh, flesh and blood enemies who, of, uh, of people or cities or kings that are our real enemy. It is the, the evil powers and the spirits of this age um, that Jesus defeated at the cross and is coming again to finally to destroy. Um, and notice for us that this also means that we aren't uh, enemies with the flesh and blood people around us. Uh, like God, we are forgiving people and fighting the spiritual evil. We know that it is God's fight to win, that it is not our power, it's not our strategy that wins it, but we get to be the foot soldiers in that fight, but we have to recognize who the real enemy is and not the flesh and blood people around us. The, the third and the, the biggest way that we have access to God's uh, comfort and salvation is through Jesus dying on the cross, that he takes the wrath that we deserve. Uh, in Ephesians, again, chapter 2, uh, starting in verse 3, it says, All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. 
So we see in this passage, we, we recognize that we still deserve God's wrath. There's nothing that's changed about that because of the cross. We, we still deserve God's wrath. We, uh, it says that we were, we were dead in our sins. We, we talk a lot about being dead in our sins as being kind of unalive, like a, like a robot or a zombie that's just a slave to sin. And that's true, but this is saying more. This is saying that we were doomed. We were not just unalive, we were doomed. We, we deserve to be obliterated by a just and holy and good God. And our response to that is to repent from that sin. We recognize that our sin deserves wrath. We repent from that. We turn away from it. We say, that is wrong. That is, that is doing evil. And I am going to, to turn the other way, to, to follow God, to, to do what is, is right. But most importantly, uh, we, we recognize our sins, we repent of them, but we celebrate that Jesus has taken the wrath away from us, that we, we don't have to endure God's wrath, we don't suffer God's wrath that we deserve. Uh, Jesus has given us new life, um, we, and yeah, it is, is complete and utter grace that is undeserved. Uh, and we celebrate that through through communion, and that's what we're going to do today. We uh, we have that up here. It is a, a symbol that, uh, as First uh, Corinthians says, uh, on Jesus' last night before he was crucified, he took some bread, uh, he gave thanks to God for it, and broke it. And he he broke it in pieces and said, "This is my body, which is given for you. Do this to remember me." In the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this to remember me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. And this death that we're announcing is the death of taking God's wrath for us. Jesus died the the worst death imaginable, uh, to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve. And we know that he didn't just die, that he also rose from the dead. He died the death that we deserve so we can share in the new life that he is offering for us. So, uh, yeah, we have the bread and we have the juice up front. Those are representing the, the body and blood of, of Jesus. Uh, and the worship team is going to come up and, and play a song. And during that time, I invite you to, to come up and, and, like I said, to recognize the sin that still deserves God's wrath, to repent of that sin, and then, most importantly, again, to celebrate that Jesus has taken that wrath away, that we, offer, we have new life in him. Um, if you're not a Christian today, uh, we, we ask that you don't take communion because this is a, a special thing for God's people who have been forgiven, who have been uh, who, who God has taken his wrath away from. Um, but for, for all of us who, who have accepted that, let's take this opportunity to, to celebrate God's enormous mercy that we've experienced and that he offers to everybody.